Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Hello everyone and thanks again for joining us at the 2021 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Cole Conniger and I'm a first year MBA student at MIT Sloan. It is my pleasure to introduce our panel, Making a QB1, the science behind quarterback evaluations. Our panelists this morning are Kevin Mears, football strategy fellow at Zealous Analytics, and Jordan Palmer, former NFL quarterback, founder of QB Summit, and NFL quarterback coach. Our panel will be moderated by Field Yates from ESPN. The panel will run for 30 minutes with 10 minutes of Q&A at the end. Please submit questions on Twitter using the hashtag MakingQB1 or in the discussion panel on the right-hand side of the screen. With that, I'll pass it to you, Field. Thank you, Cole, and I appreciate everybody who's joining us for this conversation, and of course, both Kevin and Jordan for their unique insights. And I think our hope today is to provide a little bit of information as to how we reach a QB1, which I think will be important to define first, and then also some of the different components that go into that evaluation. So I think it's important for us, as I mentioned, to identify what a QB1 or a franchise quarterback is composed of. So we'll attack it from a variety of different angles. And Jordan, I'll start with you as somebody who has worked with innumerable quarterbacks that we all can agree are franchise level players. What are some of the primary ingredients that you are looking for in a QB1? Well, thanks a lot, Field. I, I, um, you know, we, we, so much is made around the physical side of what these guys can do, uh, the throws that they can or cannot make, um, 40 time hand size, uh, just all these measurables. For me, everything really starts before that. And I have a unique perspective on this. So, um, you know, you, you guys introduced me, you said former NFL quarterback, but let's let's get specific here. So I played seven years. I have zero starts. Okay. I had one scholarship offer and, and it's debatable whether or not I actually deserved one. Uh, and then I was a late round draft pick. It was cut immediately. So I have this perspective of trying to claw my way in and, and figure things out. And I backed up a lot of QB ones, some guys like Blaine Gabbert, where you'd say that that didn't work out for him in Jacksonville. Um, and then guys like my older brother, Carson Palmer, who's, you know, one of the better ones to ever do it. Um, but also, I, my older brother was the number one pick and Heisman Trophy winner. So being the little brother and following all the way through that, my vantage point and perspective has always been on just watching and being kind of amongst these guys before I trained them. And so my eye always goes to the emotional side of things and the mental side of things before it goes to the physical. And there's so many ways that we can measure the physical, but everything comes down to me for, for two things. It comes down to confidence and it comes down to maturity. When I'm evaluating a guy who should go high, or if I'm state, you know, planting my flag on somebody who's going to be mid to late round pick, but I think that he's going to be a great player. Um, you know, a few years ago, that was Kyle Allen, who ended up not being getting a combine invite, but ended up starting a lot of games with a great career. I've got a guy right now who's going to be a late round pick in Shane Michelle that I think is going to play a long time. Everything comes down to confidence and maturity. So when I look at those two things, um, on the confidence side of things, uh, I believe that I believe that confidence is a muscle. I believe that it's something that you develop. It's not God given or hereditary. 
And um, on that, there's two types of confidence. There's reactionary confidence and self-generated confidence. And reactionary confidence is dangerous. It's where guys, it's dependent on the environment. If everybody says you're good, they, you believe them. If everybody says you're a bum, you wonder if they're right. And self-generated confidence is completely independent of the environment. It means I don't really give, care what you think. This is what I believe about myself. So for me, if you don't have self-generated confidence or if you have reactionary confidence, uh, a bigger red flag than anything else. The second thing is maturity. And maturity is not being on time and using great manners. Maturity is handling brand new situations that you've never really been in before and handling it as if you've been in that situation a ton. So for me, I get to know these guys in high school, college, and pro, and some of the guys that you're, you know, the, the guys that you were referencing, these guys who were playing, getting drafted high and playing well early. For me, I, I, those are the two things I look at: confidence and maturity. Now, there's a lot of other things I look at after that, but that's kind of that barrier to entry. If I meet somebody, I remember meeting Patrick Mahomes as a sophomore in college, and and thinking incredibly mature, and a very cool kind of confidence. And so that to me goes, all right, now. How can this guy play? But if you don't have those two things, I, I kind of don't really care about your physical measurements. So, Kevin, you have experience. Uh, most of your NFL experience was a long tenure with the Cleveland Browns. You also have exposure with the Dallas Cowboys organization, which was your barrier to entry into the league. You've seen it from the inside, how the sausage is made, so to speak. What are some of the traits that you felt like as an organization you were identifying or looking for in a quarterback that might have suggested future success at the NFL level, especially during the draft process, which we know is typically the mechanism which teams are acquiring franchise quarterbacks. You don't see a lot of guys getting traded or signing in free agency and blossoming into new chapters of their career. For sure. Uh, the draft is definitely the lifeblood of the organization. Um, it's super interesting to hear Jordan talking about kind of like <clears throat> what are the table stakes to be part of the conversation, um, to be a prospect um, as, a, as a quarterback. For me, it all starts and a lot of it just comes back to accuracy. Um, and that may sound really silly, um, but uh, I think teams often fool themselves into thinking that a quarterback is accurate enough. Um, and accuracy can be a really hard thing to measure. Um, but if a quarterback can, is, can consistently deliver an accurate ball, that's actually like, in my opinion, a very underrated thing. Uh, in my experience, teams can uh, sometimes trick themselves into taking a guy with a big arm or a great athletic skill set or a great uh, mental understanding of the game, someone who's super charismatic, but if they can't deliver the ball on time where it needs to go, then it's really hard to move forward with that kind of level of player. And is that something that you feel has evolved at all over recent years as well? I don't think that any of us would concede that football analytics have reached uh, the established state where sabermetrics are in baseball as an example. Do you feel as though we're making incremental process? And if so, did you see that applied in any instances, either during your time with the Browns or maybe a situation elsewhere in the NFL where you felt like a team made a calculated better in a player that worked out in their favor? 
Yeah, I mean, we're, we're definitely making progress. And I think um, as kind of gets talked about a lot at these kinds of conferences, like player tracking has a lot to do with that. Um, and so our understanding of what makes a quarterback good versus bad uh, has come a long way. Uh, we still have like a long way to go, um, but our ability to understand like what, what is actually making a quarterback good or not uh, has come a long way at the college level where we don't have tracking data, companies like Pro Football Focus um, who are collecting much richer data than we would ever get in the past has really advanced our understanding of the game from a data perspective where we can uh, start to understand the complexity of the offense that uh, a player is playing in, um, how uh, often they're delivering an accurate ball, how many uh, of their total passing yards are coming through the air versus after the catch or coming on a screen pass. Um, and so we're able to get smarter statistics from these richer data sources. So Jordan, obviously a lot of what you're doing with these quarterbacks is identifying and helping to develop that confidence. We talked about you're identifying maturity. You're also doing things like footwork and mechanics and sort of the nitty gritty of what I think people would just simply chalk up to is is coaching for lack of a better term, but you and I were discussing this over the past couple of days. There's some advanced data that you guys are digging into that has helped you in recent years really refine the process for some of these players. What are some of the tools that you are becoming more reliant upon to help players, even guys that are graded as the highest level prospects to become even superior players? Yeah, well, you know, when I was playing and as I transitioned out, I've been done for about four or five years now, um, you know, data and analytics and, and the conversation in the quarterback world and the quarterback coach world, I think it was largely kind of avoided and probably more so just because it didn't understand it. It's a lot like nutrition um, where it kind of it's the easy thing to set over here and go, well, I'll get to that later. Um, and I, I had a high school buddy who's married to um, a LPGA tour golfer. And uh, I'll, I'll leave their names out of it, but she's never won a tournament. And yet she has three different coaches and lives in a simulator. And I was just like, how is a middle of the pack, you know, professional golfer, female golfer, significantly more sophisticated than the best NFL quarterbacks? <laughs> like, how is the gap there? Right. And, um, and then friends in baseball and all that. So I really, the last few years have been really open-minded to it. So I was excited to, to, to speak to you guys today. Um, and I, I think for me, um, I, I totally agree with, um, with Kevin in that, you know, accuracy on the physical side of, of these traits, accuracy is by far and away for me, the most important trait. Um, now I do hear a lot of people talk about how you can't develop accuracy that you either are, or you aren't. And I, and I, I disagree with that. And I've got some case studies. Um, but in terms of evaluating accuracy and training accuracy, um, I, I think we have to look into the analytics world. So for me, what I use is, um, I try and break down what goes into uh, what goes into accuracy and actually vision is a big piece of it. Trusting your eyes. Now, most, most quarterbacks, and when I say most, I mean, I know a couple that are outside of this have no idea how good they are, how well they see because they get a screen, they go to 2020. So I work with a group called neurodynamic vision. Um, and we work with uh, latency tracking um, um, uh, vision range, depth perception. For example, I had a quarterback this year with 20-20 vision who beyond 25 yards was five yards nearsighted and beyond 35 yards was 10 yards nearsighted. It would not have shown up on any other test. Tell me that's not relevant. How far away is that safety? 
Okay. And he's had a fantastic career to this point. And, but you can train that. So vision is a big aspect of it. Consistency is another aspect of it. Consistency of what I call your stroke, your throwing motion. Um, and so for me, I use a technology called Biometric, B-I-O-M-E-T-R-E-K. Um, it's a uh, company out of here out of California. It's a mobile unit. It's 16 high-speed motion capture cameras. We're able to break it down into 4D. And um, I do two different assessments. I do a movement assessment, which is essentially quad to hamstring ratio, thoracic rotation to the right versus the left. We can actually make, measure angular velocity. And I really focus on injury prevention and identifying where the points of emphasis need to be on that athlete. When we do a throwing analysis in biometric, um, I look at the kinematic sequence. And so the kinematic sequence really simply is your hips firing, your trunk firing, uh, your elbow coming through, and then the internal rotation of your shoulder. And believe it or not, there's some really good NFL quarterbacks whose sequence is off. And so um, for me, that's another point of emphasis. And then the last part of analytics um, and how I use it in, in, uh, in technology, I'll say, is I have a partnership, an exclusive partnership with Wilson Football, where we uh, measure three key data points. So we have a chip in the ball and we measure um, velocity, which is miles per hour. We measure spin rate, which is RPMs. And then we measure uh, spiral efficiency, which the R&D team and myself have um, identified um, an algorithm where we measure like things like spiral decay. The spin rate is a component of that. And what I do is I, I've kind of tracked guys every single week. We do a movement analysis and we throw with the Wilson footballs and uh, uh, the connecteds. And every single week, and we set out and, and set out with goals to not just, not just chase numbers, but be able to put a, associate a goal and then show improvement. Um, and so when you have guys like Josh Allen, where I spent six and a half months with last year, you know, what I was saying to the team in, in the media in July, what I thought was going to happen largely was based on data. <laughs> you know, it wasn't just, you know, I'm drinking the Kool-Aid here and I think he's super good. Um, the data revealed that the, the accuracy that everybody says that he got came a lot more from control and the control was shown by an increase in spiral efficiency on two, uh, two and three balls, which is layers and touches. He's always, it's never been a horsepower problem with him. It's been a control and that has to do with your spin rate um, and, and his kinematic sequence. So we really just try and get to the root of it and technology for me between the neurodynamic vision training, helping guys see better, um, monitoring guy, um, the, the way that they're throwing the football, the way that they're controlling the football, and then looking at really what's going into that from a movement analysis of how their body works. And then from a throwing analysis of where the inefficiencies are um, I've tried to take that approach to it to be able to give them, you know, help, help them, but also be able to give them a scoreboard in the offseason so they know where they're at. They're not just getting sweaty and tired and getting it and putting in work or whatever. They're no, they're actually going towards something. And so that's why it's, it's been um, these last couple of years have been really incredible to be able to kind of provide that for these guys. It feels almost Pardon. like there's a brave new world of quarterback evaluation and I almost feel remorse right now is there was a time, I think it was the off season of 20. I know time is so relative now. I think it was the beginning stage of the 2020 off season when Jameis Winston announced that he was getting LASIK eye surgery. He was coming off of at the time, the first 30 plus touchdown, 30 interception season. And it turned into this big punchline on Twitter. And I think maybe what you're suggesting and telling me, or I guess illuminating me to is that there are, real decided benefits to improve vision for quarterbacks that maybe some of them don't even realize uh, they are dealing with right now. So Kevin, veering back to 
some of the, I think, stats or analytics, analytical tools that we have available right now that are maybe more statistically driven on the field from that we are seeing. Are there any that you either are seeing like the seeds being planted right now that you believe have a chance to be game changers for our quarterback evaluation, uh, whether it's CPOE, completion percentage over expected, EPA, expected passing yards, or expected, expected passing, I'm butchering it right now, EPA, CPOE, amongst the many others. Are there any that you see and if there are that you think have a chance to be um, maybe groundbreaking, and if so, what are the roots of them and how are they applied at this time? Yeah, so uh, there's been a lot of exciting work and development around uh, better understanding how quarterbacks play. And a lot of this comes back to just adding more and better context to uh, quarterback statistics. Jordan mentioned this earlier, but you know, a lot of traditional football minds are really skeptical of statistics and they have really good reason for that. Uh, because traditional football stats are pretty bad. Uh, like just knowing how many yards a quarterback passed for is not particularly helpful. I guess it's better than nothing, but um, that can cover up a lot of uh, a lot of what's going on underneath the surface. And so a lot of these metrics that you mentioned, uh, ESPN's QBR metric, um, again, a lot of the work that Pro Football Focus is doing, really come back to adding more context and more football knowledge to uh, these statistics that in the past have really been devoid of that context. Um, a real frontier, I think, as far as like measuring quarterbacks go, uh, it comes down to understanding quarterback decision-making. And I know your quarterback or your uh, colleague, Brian Burke, uh, has done some work around that to understand uh, like given what, what is happening on this play and how geometrically this play is unfolding on the field, uh, where's the quarterback likely to pass and where should he be passing in order to maximize his team's chances of winning? Uh, and that's a really complicated problem and one that you need to build a lot of football intelligence into. So you're not just saying, well, this guy's open, you should throw to him. You need to understand how the play is designed and where the quarterback is supposed to be going with the ball. Um, but if uh, the analytics movement can start to build metrics that understand those uh, intricacies, then we can really go a long way to understanding not just which quarterback is accurate, which one creates uh, more value for his team, but which ones are making good decisions with the football, which ones aren't. And uh, where Jordan and other quarterback coaches come in are helping quarterbacks understand what is a good decision, what's a bad decision, and how can you make more better decisions? Jordan, I'd be curious how much, if at all, the discourse you have with some of the quarterbacks that you work with might at all include some of these analytical tools that we are discussing. Uh, do you think quarterbacks are viewing them through the prism of sort of a quantifiable metric, or is it more of a trait? I just have to become a better decision maker, not specifically here are the areas in which I'm struggling. Here is uh, you know the, the level of which I'm performing. I need to be at this level. Um, are quarterbacks still warming up to some of these constructs, or is this something that, you, know, you are focused on, but and they may benefit from your focus, but they're not necessarily aware of it at this time. Yeah, I think um, when we sort of look at um, analyzing like the physical side of what they do, I think you're seeing a lot of people that are really open to it uh, and at a really young age too. 
Um, I mean, that biometric thing I talked about, I test kids in there too. Um, so I think on the physical side, on the decision-making side, I, I, I don't know where that gap's going to be met. Um, you know, for example, a lot of players are frustrated by PFF because an offensive lineman will miss a block. It'll say that he missed a block because a linebacker ran through there, but that's not his guy. Right. And so it looks like he did, but that's not his guy. And so you'll get these guys that are, they'll have their PFF rank and it's like the 22nd best guard. And you got a bunch of players going, that's actually the second best guard in the league, by the way, like where, where 22 come from. So I think you definitely get some of that. And I, and I think that the hard one for me on decision-making is going to be that a lot of times um, what looks on tape. And, and by the way, I watch people on tape and I look at a concept that I recognize that I go, Oh, this is the concept. Why is he throwing it here? That this guy's got it. This guy should be number one in that progression. But what I don't know is if they talked about that play differently that week. And that happens all the time. So 678 hook flat or dagger sale to you, however you want to call it. You got a dig, you got an option route. You got a 18 yard sale route. You got a post outside and you got a flat route. I've read that. That plays in every single playbook, high school to call it, high school to pro. I've read that play five different ways. You know, Ken Wisenhunt wanted to do it this way. Mike Larkey liked it that way. Mark Tressman really believed in looking at it here and this way. And there's, you can find a completion on that play no matter how you read it. And so I think it'll be, I think if a coaching staff is utilizing it because they're aware, uh, like the team coaching staff, not a guy like me, but if the coaching staff is, is privy to the conversations of what, where we want to go with this ball and they're set up to make those determinations based off what was decided, that's one thing. But from an evaluation standpoint, I think it's hard because you can be, you can give somebody too much credit or you can remove credit from somebody who deserves it based off of our opinion from an outsider of where they should have gone with that ball. So for me, decision-making, I build my conversation on decision-making around game management because that's independent of a concept. So once a week, all my NFL vets, we all get together and we do have, we spend four or five hours and drink some wine and hang out and I pick a different theme every single week. So last week it was end of half, end of game, the last two minutes of each half. So I had somebody put together a report on the 10 best quarterbacks in the NFL last year that did that. And it's not the names you'd think, by the way. I mean, it's like Derek Carr is really good in those situations. Um, and so we, we break those down and it creates a conversation around how do we make better decisions in these moments? Because that's actually how most people's seasons in the playoffs end is by not being on the right end of the last two minutes of the half of the game. And so, and Josh Allen's a perfect example, the last two seasons ended with that. So in, in the playoffs. And so that's the, the part of decision-making that I want to build conversation around and think about it from taking care of the football, um, managing the, the down and distance, understanding the difficulty of second and 15 or third and nine. And so like for me, I spend my time decision-making on those things. How do you start a game? What does that opening series really like dictate for the rest of the day? Um, and it, but it's harder for me to watch on tape. And when I do watch tape with watch a, a tape with a player, and it's his play, you know his tape. I'm asking more questions than talking, right? Than, than making statements. I'm going, what, what, what were your, why were your eyes here? What, what were you thinking? Sure. You know, what were what you guys talk about this week? And so I just think when it comes to utilizing technology to evaluate guys as a decision maker, um, I think that's that's there's an opportunity to figure out a way for that to work. But to answer your question, uh, I, I think we're a ways away from that being adopted um, if it's done outside of the actual quarterback room. 
I thought it was interesting that you noted how, you know, one play can be called five different ways, but, you know, similar concepts involved. And it reminds me of it. I want to ask Kevin, which is that, you know, football is sort of like this unique blend of languages sometimes. So where do you think we are at or how do you think we optimize this mesh point of coaches and in scouts who are used to their traditional ways, which is, you know, grind the tape, pull out the hand stopwatches for the 40 yard dash, you know, the combine and the various drills that we've got 35 years of historical data to reference. How do we reach the, re- uh, reach the mesh point of that with analytics that even if they are still in relatively infant stages of application, are starting to prove to be worthwhile. And how did you maybe see growth? You know, the Browns are a team that we know has been probably as analytically invested as any over the past decade or so. How did you see maybe the growth uh, between those two sides and maybe coming closer together? Great question Um, and a lot to unpack there. Uh, I think number one comes back to like having humility as like the data person. and understanding just how much you have to learn um, and putting yourself, like being able to see the game through the eyes of a scout or a coach can go a really long way. And the more you can do to speak their language, like the better off everyone is. So I like, I owe a lot to uh, the scouts that I worked with who, you know, stayed late in the office to like watch film with me and let me bug them about what they were seeing on film so that I could like become a better analyst and build more context into the analysis that I was doing. And that creates a lot of trust. Like having those experiences creates trust and creates a willingness to listen and engage in a conversation about uh, like where our analysis can help and where it can't really help. Um, That combined with um, like a lot of what Jordan's talking about Uh, where like technology is helping us measure football in ways uh, that like provide better context and provide more accurate information that we actually like care about. So if we replaced for quarterbacks, at least if we replaced all of the combine with the uh, with the workout and analysis that Jordan was just talking through that his guys go through like it's hard for me to imagine that like the NFL wouldn't be interested in that, or at least shouldn't be more interested in that than understanding or than knowing like what a guy's hand size is. So let me ask you this, uh, Kevin, about that. You saw this and you've seen probably the good and bad side of it is how important do you believe situation is to quarterback development? Uh, Do you think that it's important that, or do you think it's more important for a team to adapt to a player's skill set, or do you think the team needs to identify a player who fits within their system, and that's how you reach a QB one? Uh, yeah, it, that's a another great question, and uh, I, it probably depends a bit on who. It depends a bit on the organization and the personalities involved. Um, some coaches have their system and they need a guy who is going to fit in their system. Um, and that can be really hard to work with. Um, especially because, uh, some coaches, the, the grass can always be greener and the guy that you have in house, uh, somehow never looks as good as the guy who's playing in the, in the other Jersey. 
Um, and so I'm generally of the mind that adapting uh, the team to the strengths of the quarterback that you have and trying to build and trying to put the quarterback in a position to succeed as a team can go a long way. You know, we're not going to turn me into uh, Carson Palmer uh, or Jordan Palmer, uh, but we can definitely do things as a team to set a player up for success. Um, some easy ways to do that are uh, like running uh, plays that just most quarterbacks excel in. So using more play action, using more motion to make things easy uh, for the quarterback. Um, and I'm just leveraging the player's strengths. You know, if you have a quarterback who has a weaker arm, like uh, call for vert a little less often um, and play to that guy's strengths. Uh, before we open up to the Q&A, as I'm sure hopefully there are some people that want to ask a couple of questions here, Jordan, I'll just ask you, and there probably are some players that you have worked with or still work with that I would think that if you put Patrick Mahomes basically anywhere, he'd be a pretty darn good quarterback. He obviously has some rare traits that just make him one of those players that was bound to find success. But are there – how frequently do you find that players you work with, like, is there something that you can discern in your work with them that suggests to you, all right, you put this guy anywhere, he's going to be okay. Versus this is the kind of player that I can see him fitting really well in these eight organizations or systems. If he ends up in one of the other 24, he might be in and out of the league rather quickly. Yeah. I, I think there's two diametrically opposed evaluations going on in, in football every single year. There's the teams that are evaluating for their team. And then there's the media and anybody, you know, people on Twitter, me, anybody with an opinion. And so if you Google NFL QBs draft ranking, you're going to get people like field Yates or Jordan Palmer or anybody else, you know what I mean? Their our opinion on who's first, who's second, who's third, who's fourth, who's fifth. But again, through, through my experience, it has way more to go to do with who goes where. So I don't think that Patrick Mahomes, and I, I love him. I've known him for a long time. I don't think Patrick Mahomes would have had the same success anywhere. One, one thing that came up was very interesting. So Cliff Kingsbury is the one who sent him to me. He was, a, he was the coach at Texas Tech, and he called me, and I didn't even know him. He got my number from somebody. He said, hey, I want to send somebody out to you. I got this thing. I don't know if he's a baseball player. I don't know if he's a quarterback. I don't know if he's the greatest thing ever. It was really early in Patrick's career. And Patrick came out and, and, and I, by no means did I see it right away or anything like that. He was crazy talented. But when I ran into to, to Cliff, um, I think last year, two years ago at a, at a Cardinals game, we were talking and he brought up something really interesting. And we were talking, he goes, we're, you know, how, how crazy is that the Mahomes? Man, it's so cool. How, how awesome, how much success he's had. Great guy and all that stuff. And he goes, he went to the, Cliff said he went to the perfect spot because Andy Reid's one of the only people who had the confidence to say, I'm not going to change you. Uh, if you actually take nine steps this time, if you go that weird angle, if you do this completely different than everybody else, I need to get you to a certain place at a certain time, seeing a certain thing. So it took humility from Andy Reid to not try and change him. And I could build a long list of coaches who would have tried to change Patrick. Okay. And we're going to see it in this upcoming draft. If everything's true and Mac Jones is the third player taken in this draft, which I think most people, if they came up with their rankings of the players in the draft, I don't know that he's in very many people's top 10, 15, some people not in their top 20 players 
in the draft, but we're going to see him potentially go third to San Francisco. And guess what? San Francisco doesn't care where he's at on everybody else's board. They are drafting a quarterback for what they think will work in their system. So you may have him as the sixth quarterback, may have him as the first quarterback, but there's the media side of what we're ranking, which is fine and fun. And I read it and it's, you know, whatever we do interviews, but teams just don't care about that. Teams are drafting. They know what they ask the quarterback to do. And they have to at least have an opinion around who of these potential candidates would allow us to do that consistently, effectively. And how long is that lead cycle until we can actually get him to do it in an NFL game? And so when you look at it through that lens, when I first heard that it was going to be Mac Jones, I was like, yeah, that makes total sense. I don't have him as the third guy, but like that makes total sense. The analogy that I've used, which is not nearly as thoughtful as, as what you just laid out, is I've always said that sometimes with quarterback evaluation, if there are five in a class, it might be like going down to a neighborhood where there are five comparably priced homes with four of your friends. And I may say, I like the first house. And you, Jordan, may say, I like the second house. And Kevin may say, I like the third house. And someone else is the fourth and the fifth, et cetera. They're all sort of the, you know, to, to the average, you know, to the real estate agent, they're all sort of priced the same way. But to each of us, we say, there's no way I would ever buy that second home, even though it may be listed for 10000 less than the third home or something to that effect. So uh, what you just described, I think, helps us, uh, leads us right into one of the questions we got uh, from, from our audience. And I'll ask you, Kevin, is, uh, are there any tactics or analytics um, that you you, you, you you utilized or think can be helpful in utilizing sort of grain out QB qualities that go unnoticed in consensus rankings? Hmm. Um, it's an interesting thought. Um, the first thing that comes to mind uh, has to do with uh, pressure and how quarterbacks like uh, often in in just the discussion, we think about um, pressure on quarterbacks and quarterback sacks as an offensive line stat or as a defensive stat. And uh, quarterbacks have a lot of control over how much pressure they're under and uh, how many sacks they take. So that's one example of a metric that, you know, uh, isn't definitely isn't the first or even maybe the second thing that uh, anyone is looking at, but uh, can tell you a bit about how the quarterback plays and maybe where he needs to improve. Uh, Jordan, do you feel like there is a misjudged component or skill that has led quarterbacks uh, to not meet expectations as pros? Like, is there something that maybe we rely upon too heavily that actually doesn't portend success as much as we'd like it to? Well, I think there's a thing that people miss on and, and we're going to see it this year. And we saw it last year, too, because because of the um, pandemic and not being able to really spend a lot of time evaluating players in person and getting to know them and dinners. Just so so, you know, um, you know, this year everything's on Zoom and they and even at the pro days, they watch them throw, but they can't have dinner. Normally you'd have dinner the night before with a team, breakfast the morning of your pro day with the team, lunch with a different team after your pro day and dinner that night with another team. You schedule those meetings around it. So they meet you at the senior bowl. They meet you at the combine in a, in an informal and then a formal meeting. Then they meet you at your pro day, come out, hang it. Then they bring you in for a team visit. At that point, you've built a relationship with this guy this year. It's on zoom. So the number one area that I think people miss is some of these guys are soft. Some of these guys don't love contact. 
Some of these guys aren't interested in being the hardest worker. And it may not look that way on Instagram. And it may not look that way in their post-game press conference. But we're, you're going to see teams miss and find out that that guy is soft. And being soft as a quarterback, whether that's mentally – most guys are okay taking hits. But that, that sort of resolve and toughness, I have been around quarterbacks that have quit. Whether it's emotionally or mentally or they're over it or they're thinking about the offseason already, whatever that indicator is to quit, that's one that you're not going to find on Zoom. And so that's where you really got to dive deep. There are no metrics around that. And so that's the biggest piece because that's the do not pass go, do not collect $200. It's over. And when you have guys that do that, and case in point, right, I'm, I'm doing Cal, uh, Colin Cowherd today, and we're talking about the Sam Darnold thing later. Well, one of the reasons that, like, I'm going to say, I'm gonna, what I'm going to say about Sam is that he's going to be set up for comeback player of the year. And this is going to be, he, I, like him, I like I am more confident in Sam Darnold right now than I was when he was entering the draft. And I've got a lot of reasons. But one of them is that I didn't know how mentally tough he was. He'd never been tested. But two years ago, the worst offense in NFL history, the Jets and all the chaos and all that, he finished that season six and two. I just know a ton of guys who'd have been over it. Last year, the seeing ghosts and the horrible and all that, he almost went three and up. He went two and one. So like that type of result, I didn't, I've known the kids since he was 14. I didn't know if he had that. Now I do know that. So now I know whatever's coming forward is not that big a deal. But I've just been around a lot of quarterbacks where like really, really hard situations, you know, they're, they're, not, they're not really interested in sorting that out. And, and I don't know how you test for it, but it's certainly something that is not going to show up on Zoom. And you've got to really talk to the college players. You've got to talk to the trainer in the college training room. Because uh, there's some guys in this draft that are going to get overdrafted and teams are going to miss on something that I think I know. We've got a couple minutes left here. So I thought, that, by the way, the Sam Darling case, such a fascinating conversation because the traits outweigh the production to this point. That he, He's okay. a player that you're banking on what you saw college tape and occasional plays in the NFL as opposed to if you just looked at the raw numbers during his first three seasons in New York. But this is an interesting question, Kevin, that came up is, are you aware of any analytics that quarterbacks are using to self-scout? Like, how would it, if, if you're Baker Mayfield or a separate quarterback, how would a defense try to stop me? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, Jordan, I'm sure you can weigh in here, too, um, of information that you got. But I think uh, a lot of that information gets filtered through the coach and the coaching staff. Uh, so, the analytics group will be providing, uh, you know, a book to the coaching staff ahead of uh, every game that's filled with um, breakdowns of uh, what the upcoming opponent does well and what they do poorly. And it's more so up to the coaching staff to sort through that and uh, boil that down to whatever they want to communicate to the player. Another place where uh, the analytics groups can come in is helping build cutups much more efficiently than they have been able to in the past. Um, and so if a player wants to see uh, a very specific cutup of, I want to see like every time uh, this defense was uh, between uh, the 25 and the 25 and they were playing cover three for whatever reason, like uh, analytics can help uh, generate that cutup much more quickly than uh, we've been able to do in the past. We're definitely working smarter and not necessarily harder in a lot of ways. And I found this conversation illuminating between the two of you to hear about quarterback evaluation and how we're making progress. Uh, I want to 
extent. If either one of you has any closing marks or thoughts you want to get in before we wrap it up, let's hear it, Jordan. Yeah, I think it would be awesome. And this is the this is the group of people to present this to. But if you if you guys and gals can come up with a way for the quarterback room um, to build something around evaluating their decision making process, something that is in there. And forgive me if it's built. I just am asking guys if they have this and they hasn't crossed their desk, so to speak, yet. Um, but if that quarterback room, and I referenced it earlier, if that quarterback room could come to a conclusion of what they should have done on that play, and that can be something that's automated, um, I think it would be decision-making is the biggest piece. There's the physical side of accuracy that Kevin and I talked about, um, but that decision-making piece, somebody's subjective opinion around what that quarterback should have done, whether that's a member in the media saying, hey, this guy's open right here, I don't know why I didn't throw it to him, or PFF or another tool that's as soon as you're wrong, they're never going to listen to that again. It's like PFF. Like they can make all sorts of alterations. I can just tell you a lot of players in the league aren't going to hear it anyways. Now they're not the consumer, but they're not going to hear it because it, as soon as you're wrong once or twice. And so if, if somebody can build something where the quarterback, the quarterback coach, the room of quarterbacks can come to a consensus of that's what we had talked about. That's where that ball should have gone. And you can start to get feedback that way. I think there's an opportunity to build something special. If you find that, I'll sit on your board. Yeah, I think I have my marching orders. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've, we've left you with some homework on the way out here, Kevin. But for both Kevin Mears uh, and Jordan Palmer, really appreciate everybody joining us here today and for your great insights. And uh, looking forward to not just seeing how the quarterback evaluation landscape pans out, but also have some of the quarterbacks that we are discussing in a certain way going into the draft right now look a year or two or three or four from right now. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And uh, to everybody at the uh, Sloan Sports Analytics Conference for having three of us having the opportunity to talk some shop here. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.